everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, you can call us at 844-999-9249, or you can always email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and we will answer as many questions as possible. So many things happening. So good to be back. Uh, for many of you, holiday season is now over. Maybe get an extra little long weekend. Um, I personally had a, a really great week. Um, we took the family. We went east. We were in New Jersey. I hung out with my daughter. Um, saw my children. Paid for pizza parties. Uh, went up to Muncie, saw family, hung out with my mother and all my siblings and nieces and nephews on Sunday, headed back on Monday. Really, really a great time. That's what it's all about. Get together with family, a change of scenery. And then, you know, now it's January 2nd. It's time to get back with the real world. But we got to talk about what's happening in the world. You know, my world um, could be your world. But uh, something that took place yesterday um, in New Jersey, it only takes place every seven and a half years. Um, it is called the Siyum Hashas, which in English means the completion of the Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud. About 96 years ago, there was a man by the name of Rabbi Meir Shapiro that he thought, felt, it would be a great idea if Jews around the world would be studying the same topic. So he came up with the idea, do one folio, two sides of the page, every day, no missing, and there's about 2,700 folios, it'll take you about seven and a half years, and you will complete the Talmud, which is a, a, a great accomplishment for numerous reasons. Um, one of the beauties is you could be traveling anywhere, not know the person sitting there, but you see he's got a Talmud in his hand and you got one, and you say, hey, we're waiting for the train, waiting for the plane. Uh, why don't we sit and study together for a few minutes to pass the time and that way study better? So it's a, a, a and it's, it's taken on a life of its own. In other words, there were people that did it always. But over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, it's exploded. There are lectures everywhere. You can always find different cities when you're traveling. Wherever you go, you can find a lecture to go to because everyone's on the same page. So this one says his explanation, this one says that explanation, but it's really, really quite amazing and beautiful. So yesterday, um, they made the, you want to call it the celebration, the party for completing the Talmud. So they made it in a stadium, in MetLife Stadium, for those of us a little older, in Giant Stadium. They had some other locations, maybe not the best day weather-wise. It was quite cold and quite windy. My son was there. I had brother-in-laws there. I had brothers there. I had nephews there. Um, I had a sister-in-law there. However many people fit in that stadium, pretty much is how many people were there. I don't know what that number is. You look it up online, 70,000, 80,000, whatever the number is. And it was amazing, just different rabbis and lecturers and dancing and singing. And it was, it, was, it was amazing. It was just beautiful to behold all these people that were coming with, uh, with one purpose in mind, just to celebrate um, seven and a half years of study, which is really 
to, I guess, to give you a good feeling of what it takes. It would take the average person, um, even if he goes to a lecture, between 45 minutes and an hour to do that folio. That's about how long it should take. So what happens is if you go away on vacation, you can't come back and be eight hours behind. Who has eight hours in their schedule to catch up? And if you go on a two-week vacation, so you're 14, 15 hours behind, you'll never catch up. So the idea is even when you go on vacation, you still got to put in your time to study. So myself, we, we left Wednesday. We um, got to the hotel. But I knew the next morning I was going to wake up early. For me, it's regular time. But wake up early to get in my study time. What happened was we're in the hotel, so the kids are eating in the room. So I went down to the kitchen area, very quiet, found myself a table, parked myself, started studying, had my Talmud with me. And um, I don't know, about 15, 20 minutes later, my wife wanders down. And she sits across from me. We schmooze for a few minutes, and I say, um, you know, I got I to gotta finish over here. Like, you know, we can't leave to hit the road till I finish. But you could stay. It's like, you know, it's no problem. So, um, but anyways, that was this amazing celebration, stories of, of different people, of what it took, how they accomplished it, how they felt, the sweetness of it. It was, it was something to be experienced. It was something to see. It was, I don't know, they claim that a million people uh, watched it online. I, myself, was one of those uh, people watching it live online because that way I could be in the warmth and comfort of my office. And it also gave me the two hours I needed to mark report cards. For those of you who are teachers, like sometimes you got to have a big class, 25 children. Takes a couple hours to get through the report cards, and I got through the bulk. The grades, I'm sure the children will be happy. I guess it was in a, such an uplifted mood, I probably gave higher marks, which is always a nice thing. So anyways, that was, uh, that was what happened yesterday. If you missed it, I'm sure you can go online and find out what happened. Uh, but it was really, really amazing. And uh, I didn't get the stories. There's always nice stories of people coming and going. And it's not like going to a football game where people are getting drunk and coming out and yelling and screaming and cursing. That's not the atmosphere. It is a very family-oriented, pleasant, beautiful atmosphere. The, the, the security has, has said in past years it was just so beautiful how people comment and talk and speak and, and how helpful they are. It was really... So I'm sure those stories will come out, but it was just yesterday. So my social media hasn't started printing uh, and sending out all those nice messages that people got, but I'm sure it was really quite beautiful. Unfortunately, there were other things happening in the world that were not as pleasant, and we're not going to get into those things. We have other things to talk, but I like things on a high, and, and you can think I'm on my drugs to be in a happy mood, but I am in a happy mood. I'm always in a happy mood. So we got lots of things happening today. First of all, after the break, we're going to be speaking to Ari Lieberman. Um, he's in Israel. He wrote a fascinating book, which is really perfectly timed right now. Um, he talks about the emperors. We'll see Alexander and Talmai and Antoninus and other ones. And the great rabbinic rabbis from the time of the Talmud that actually dealt and met and befriended these different emperors. So all those stories are fascinating it happens to be even more fascinating because next week is a fast day. And that fast day is for three different things that took place. The walls of Jerusalem were surrounded by the Babylonians. Uh, the Torah, the written Torah, was translated into Greek. 
We'll have to get into that should be a good thing. Why is it a bad thing? We'll have to talk about that. And the great Ezra Hasofer, who led the Jews from Babylonia to rebuild the second temple and come back for the second temple, he also passed away. So those are the three reasons the fast comes up next week. And uh, with our guest, we'll for sure touch on that. But with the little time we have left in this segment, we got to delve into this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion um, is a climax. It is amazing uh, the emotions that are taking place in this week's Torah portion. You have over the last few weeks, Joseph is sent down to Egypt. He's sold as a slave. Eventually he becomes the king of, uh, or second in command at least, of Egypt. He turns Egypt into a world power. Meanwhile, Joseph's brothers are going to head down to Egypt. Joseph wants to see, can the brothers still love him, or really a child of his mother, Rachel? So Joseph will test them. He sets them up. He accuses them of being spies. He says, you want to prove you're not a spy? Bring Benjamin down here, your other brother, and... uh, and then they bring down Benjamin, and they have a nice party, and Joseph has his magic cup planted in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends out the guards to bring them back once they leave to accuse them of being thieves, and he's going to keep Benjamin as a slave. And uh, Judah, of course, in a, is at a bind because he promised his father he would bring back Benjamin, and now Benjamin's being accused of being a thief. And that's where this week's Torah portion opens. So Judah will plead with Joseph. We told you our father is old and he never lets this son leave. And and, uh, we told you we don't want to bring him and our father didn't want to send him and you forced us to send him and and now look what happened and and how could I do this to my father and I can't go back, better take me as a slave. There's a lot of emotions taking place and Joseph is sitting there sternly pretending that, like, why should I care? He's a thief. But Joseph wants to see how far will the brothers go to protect Benjamin, and he'll know if if he can trust the brothers to say, I'm Joseph, because if he can't trust the brothers, they could kill him. So Joseph gets to the point he does not want to embarrass his brothers because he's going to have to make the statement to prove he's Joseph that, you know, remember, guys, you sold me down to Egypt? And that's such an embarrassing statement, and it's gonna co- it could cause a lot of issues that if the Egyptians find out that these brothers sold their second-in-command, they are not going to be uh, friendly towards them. They're not going to be nice to these brothers who are obviously rotten people because they sold their second-in-command, their pretty much leader of their country. So Joseph sends everybody out. And now it's dangerous because the brothers are now alone with Joseph. They could kill him. And Joseph makes this most famous statement. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And this is a problematic statement. First things first, even my boys in my third grade understood right away that for these past two Torah portions, All the brothers keep talking about is their old father and their old father and he'll die and and he'll be so sad and how could you take Benjamin? And Joseph is as sounds like he wasn't paying attention to all these conversations. I've been telling you the whole time about our father and you ask, is our father still alive? Like, what, what gives? What was Joseph saying, is my father still alive? Simplest explanation 
is that Joseph did not believe them. And it was maybe to protect themselves, they created a sob story. Joseph doesn't know for sure if his father's really alive. So since Joseph doesn't know, he has to ask. That's a simple explanation. Um, a different explanation, which, interesting enough, a boy in my class um, actually figured out, which is really amazing, um, is Joseph wasn't asking a question. Joseph was making a statement. He says, you big talkers, people like to say the word hypocrite, you big talkers, all along you've been saying you care about my father, you care about my father, you don't want my father to be sad. Were you thinking about my father when you sold me? You sold me, and you knew my father would be upset. I was his favorite son. He taught me everything. He gave me the special coat. What were you thinking when you sold my father? When you, I'm sorry, what were you thinking when you sold me? You weren't thinking about our father then, were you? So hogwash, as we say. Hypocrites what you are. That's like the opening salvo. It's not to say Joseph is upset at his brothers. He's going to be very clear that he's not angry at his brothers. He doesn't want to take revenge on his brothers. That's God's job. That's not his job. He needed to be in Egypt so he could support the family. But that statement of, you guys have been asking all these questions, what's going on, what gives, how can you do such a thing, all that stuff is out the window. Once Joseph says this line, I'm Joseph, is my father still alive? All the questions are answered. Why Joseph's been doing this? What... We couldn't understand what's happening. Why is he bringing down Benjamin? Why is he starting up with us? Why is he asking about our father? All this stuff is out the window because they've gotten the answer, and this answer silences them. I gave an example. Imagine I told my class, I said, imagine that um, you were giving a speech about how terrible shoplifting is. You're giving a speech to a whole crowd. Shoplifting is terrible and why it's terrible and why it hurts the economy and what kind of person do you think you are and how can you do such a thing? And then while you're giving this speech about how terrible shoplifting is, two police officers come in. They say, excuse me, sir, you're under arrest for shoplifting. So it might be true that shoplifting is a terrible thing, but no one will listen to your message because you are worthless. Because the exact message you gave, you don't believe in. So Joseph now has to convince his brothers that I am not angry at you. And I need you to go back and tell my father. As, a, as an aside, um, Joseph could never tell his father why he was sold or that he was sold. First of all, the brothers come and kill him. Second of all, the brothers would get cursed out. Um, third of all, clearly, if God wanted Jacob to know, he could have told him himself. But now that Joseph is with the brothers and they're all on the same page and they're all, at least for now, all happy and lovey-dovey, so now Joseph wants his brothers to quickly go tell Jacob and bring Jacob down to Egypt. And by the way, that will begin the the Egyptian exile, which will last for 210 years and a, uh, a about half of it will be spent in real slavery. So, um, but there's a lot of play between the brothers and a lot of things happening. And it's an interesting verse. I actually just taught that verse to my class today. It says, Joseph cried on Benjamin's neck and Benjamin cried on Joseph's neck. What was happening? 
So you would imagine that, okay, these are the two brothers. They have the same mother. They haven't seen each other for so long. So this is their, this is their emotions. It's time to cry. It's time to be happy. Long lost brother. But interesting enough, the commentaries, Rashi at the beginning says that's not why they were crying. Joseph was crying that the two temples would be destroyed, and those were on the property of Benjamin. Benjamin is crying that the tabernacle in Shiloh would be destroyed, and that was built in Joseph's territory. So the question is, I mean, it's very nice. You know, you're crying about that future happening, but why are you crying about it now? So the answer is now is the time to cry because the reason the temples were destroyed and the reason that the tabernacle was destroyed is because the Jewish people were not friendly with each other. We did not treat each other like brothers. We hated each other. We fought with each other. That was the cause of the destruction of the temples. That's what's holding the temples from being rebuilt because brothers can hate each other and brothers can fight each other. Here comes my my music. But... uh, it's going off and on, but it's there somewhere. But anyways, um, so they're crying now because even though now the brothers have shown that they love each other, but it's not a full-fledged love because this love is not going to last and it will cause the destruction of temples and therefore Joseph and Benjamin are crying. We got to cut it now. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Ari Lieberman, author of The Emperor and the Jews. Hold through the break and we're going to be right back. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Wait, but your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. (laughs) Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a card. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to the drop-in today. Then you get off your couch and you make life happen. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. (laughs) I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? And we're back, and we are joined by Ari Lieberman, who has a degree in political science, which I have no idea what that is, in history from Barilan, an MBA from Temple, 
but is obviously very bored. So he wrote his first book, The Emperor and the Jews. Ari, how are you today? See, how, uh, thank you, Tzvi, for having me on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great this evening. Amazing. Did you check out the CMHS? Did you do something in Israel for it? Uh, yeah, well, you know, we, we, there's so many, so many events happening. It really is. It, w- it was just incredible. And um, I was actually uh, watching from MetLife with, with my uh, 13-year-old uh, Bar Mitzvah Bacher son yesterday. It, it, it was just absolutely, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Amazing. I also was watching from my computer, but my son was there. I don't know if you noticed him. He was one of the however many thousands of people were there. Uh, but he's from a warm climate like you. So people from North Miami Beach don't do well in frigid, cold, windy weather. But hey, Baruch Shem survived, and we are ready. So Ari, first things first, I always ask everyone the same first question. Who is Ari Leibowitz? Um... Check it out on Amazon. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, uh, Ari Lieberman is is a, um, a, a a person who lives uh, who made Aliyah about 25 years ago with with his wife from the New York area, and uh, we have been living um, in Ramat Beit Shemesh for the last uh, 20 years, uh, basically since the beginning of the community, and um, we are proud parents of six. A uh, firstborn daughter who is married, and we had who had our first grandchild, um, a granddaughter, about uh, eight nine months ago, and um, our daughter is followed by uh, five sons. Wow, a real boy family, amazing, amazing. So thank you, thank you, and and Mazdav on the granddaughter, you said right. Thank you very much. It's very really, good. it's a, uh, um, it, it's it's wonderful. It, it's 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 so new, and and they're very close to us. Um, you know, we can we can walk there. It's about a twenty five minute walk, so um, uh, we get to see them and her all the time. It's beautiful. There's nothing like grandchildren because you can hold them and play with them. When they cry, you give them back to their parents. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I did hear. This is a little extreme, but you know, when when you're having a rough time with your kids, um, you just always remember when you have the grandchild, you understand why you didn't kill your children or eat them. Okay, I got it. Very good. So, um, anyways, um, you're not a historian or a writer. You told me by trade. Why did you write your book? The, 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 that's correct. Um, um, I'm I'm not a historian. I've always been interested in history. Um, so this is something uh, very different and, and new for me. Uh, I, I, th- I think the, the impetus, um, there's, there's a couple of, of reasons. Uh, number one is, is uh, more currently, I, I have a very close relationship um, with the publishers, Mosaic Press, um, which was founded by Rabbi Yaakov Haber um, and Rabbi Daron Kornbluth. Rabbi Haber is a prominent Rav in our community, Ramat Beit Shemesh, today, uh, and Doran Kornbluth is a neighbor and a friend. And um, uh, I've been with the company, assisting them in, in certain ways since their inception. And, and you know, one of the ideas that they have is that many people have a book inside of them; it just needs to be brought out. And over the years, they kind of helped me realize that and it was a process but um, it came out it, it took a while but uh, a lot of research 
uh, but the emperors and the Jews did come out um, after after all that that effort. Yeah, it's a lot of it's it's a easy read. It's a it's a it's a it's a good read. It's a lot. I like history, so anytime you know we can put different pieces of the puzzle to help everything fit, always helps me. So um, let's first before we get into it, just a quick overview. What period of time in history are we? Uh, is your book um, dealing with? The, 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 the book covers um, uh, the, the period of time uh, from the Greek Empire to parts of the Roman Empire. Uh, it, it is at the starts at the early days of the Second Temple of the Cheney with Alexander the Great, and it concludes. Um, with um, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi during the Roman rule at the beginning of the, um, the first, second century um, in, in, in Eretz Yisrael and Israel. So um, about- and and, and I, I would say that one of the reasons why I picked um, that period of time going back is, is that there are um, many, many, many sources, both secular and Talmudic, and a kind of gave the opportunity to weave those sources um, together. Uh, so before we get into it, did you find the sources um, contradicted a lot? They, uh, For the most part, they, they overlap nicely. How did you find between the Talmudic sources and uh, the secular you know, sources? I, How did I, it work? I, I, think it's, I think there was a mix of that. Um, certainly, you know, the, the, the Talmud is not uh, a, a history book. Uh, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm never troubled by you know, seeming, seemingly contradictions between one version or another version within secular history. There, there are numerous versions uh, as well. Um, so there, there, when there are contradictions, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, you know, that's so critical to understanding something. You had mentioned, obviously, you know, the Siyama Shas, which, you know, from, from a Jewish perspective, is is um, is a historical event, uh, you know, a, a coming in. I, I think Rabbi Rabbi Crowen and Rabbi Fran spoke about that in in the parts that I saw coming, you know, seventy five eighty years after after the destruction of European Jewry of the Holocaust of the Shoah. Uh, this is uh, put in its historical perspective. This was an amazing event, and and yet of course this this is not viewed by the rest of the world as. An event of historic proportions. We're coming from different angles, from different perspectives. Um, we see the world differently, and, and these encounters between these great leaders, Greek and Roman, and and great personalities of Jewish history, kind of bring out the the the, the vast difference between outlooks and and views of history. Yeah. So you do something really fascinating. That I guess following up what we're discussing that a. Uh, a we'll call it a regular historian wouldn't get involved in. Was the regular historian wants to talk about Alexander's wars and what he tried to accomplish. I'm sorry, I didn't catch the last last part. Uh, oh, Jacobson. Sorry about that. I said most historians, if they want to discuss Alexander the Great, at least that's what they refer to him as, um, are looking for his wars, his conquests, uh, his short lifespan, Aristotle. They're not really too interested how some rabbi may have had an interplay with him. But that is exactly what your book is all about, that we'll call it interplay, it's a pretty good word, how these great Torah leaders um, were involved with emperors that should have had nothing to do with them. Is that what got you excited? 
I, I, I think that was part, that was part of it. Um, you know, as I started looking at Alexander the Great, um, you know, I, I was aware that uh, Alexander had a role in in the Talmud in traditional Jewish sources, um, but I think I really started looking at the secular sources, and um, it was clear that that this was to me Alexander was was the most unique historical personality um, that ever lived in the secular world. Um, here, here, was, here was somebody who was raised um, to do what he did, which was conquer the, the entire civilized world uh, that existed at the time. Um, he believed that he was ordained to do that. His mother um, was a great influence on him. She believed that she was um, godly, that she was a descendant of Zeus, and passed that on to him. His father raised him from an early age um, with this dream to conquer the, the Persian Empire at the time, and, and he had everything going for him. You know, he spent three years with Aristotle. He, he was an intellectual. He was a philosopher. Um, he never lost the battle. Uh, he, he was creative. He was just such a unique personality, and, and that's from the secular perspective. And then when you go to the Jewish sources, it just opens up a whole box because Alexander is, is, is the subject of numerous prophecies in the book of Daniel. He is front and center um, as the third of the fourth kingdom, the Greek kingdom. Um, and it, then you open up all the Talmudic sources and you see his encounters. And some of these encounters um, parallel encounters that he had with other civilizations. Uh, there are other recorded incidences where he met with Indian philosophers and, and asked them a series of riddles and questions. So, so it's certainly uh, believable. Um, it, it's only recorded in the Talmud, uh, but, but it's consistent with who Alexander was. Amazing. So one of the stories, of course, you bring down is from the most famous stories, and I'll let you elaborate, but that's obviously Alexander is on his way to what, I don't know if he had to actually conquer the land of Israel. I don't think he had to actually conquer it, but he was certainly on his way to destroy the temple, and the high priest... Um, Shimon Atzadik is going to have to stop Alexander from destroying the temple and an army he doesn't have. Um, and I don't even know if there's any basis for this in secular history, but uh, why don't you help us out with that story first and that, that play between these two, for us, on our side, Shimon Atzadik, the high priest, as our leader, and Alexander certainly on his uh, world conquest. Correct. So, so that 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 story um, takes place. Alexander has has crossed into Europe, into Turkey, um, into the Middle East. He's he's come across. He's conquered everything. He's coming down the Mediterranean coast, and he is encountering city after city, all under Persian rule. He he has a a brutal brutal battle, which is described in the book in Tyre which we, of course, know from, from today in Lebanon. And um, brutal, brutal takes him seven, eight months to conquer the city island of Tyre, um, massacres thousands of people after he conquers. And now he's coming down the coast. It's unclear as to when this encounter in Eretz Yisrael in the land of Israel with the Shimon Tzaddik would take place. It's either, um, again, history is just so fascinating because as he's coming down the coast, 
he encounters um, a, a governor in Gaza um, who, uh, contrary to, to most of the places that he came to, decides he's going to fight Alexander, you know, hand-to-hand. He's, he, he has a city, the Gaza at that time, was elevated on, on some kind of a mound. It was a higher city, and Alexander, being who he was, um, so creative, uh, he realized that he couldn't fight with, from the low ground. He builds himself an elevated city of sorts, uh, a, 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 a embarkment to fight, and now he's on level level playing fields and decimates Gaza, goes down to Egypt. There's a bunch of stories there. So it's unclear whether he's coming back from, from Egypt, where he, he discovers this beautiful um, area on the coast, which he sees in a vision, uh, really almost in a vision, that it could be a, a beacon of light facing back to, to Greek and Macedonia, and that, of course, was the founding of the city of Alexandria, uh, the first city that was named after Alexander. So now he's coming back from this or before this, and um, he meets up with the, the Kuthians, uh, bitter enemies of the Jewish people, and uh, they convince him that the Jewish people remain loyal to Persia and will fight against him. So he's on his way to encounter the Jewish people, and who knows what's going to happen. It, it, it doesn't look good. And Shimon Tzadik, um, who at that time... Um, apparently, if we look at the sources and, and the traditional Jewish sources, especially Dorot Harishonim, the great historian, uh, claims that he was not yet the the um, the uh, high priest. He was not yet the Kohen Gadol. He was the grandson of the Kohen Gadol, and he was sent on this mission. Later, he does become the Kohen Gadol, and he comes in in really is very. And I, I point this out in the book. Very contrary to most of these encounters. Many of these encounters were were private. They were modest. This this was a very very outlandish show. He had a whole retinue of people with him, with 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 uh, torches, coming in the middle of the night for this great encounter. Uh, the, the traditional sources show that there was a, a deep, very deep spiritual uh, understanding by Shimon Tzadik as to where he had to tap in into the attributes of, of justice, into the attributes of, of judgment and mercy. And he was tapping into all this from, from the koach, from the strength of Torah. And he, he meets, uh, as, as the sun comes up, he meets Alexander. Alexander says, you know, who are these people that are coming? The Kuthian says, these are your enemies, loyal to the Persian Empire. And as he sees Shimon Hatzabek and this, this fantastic entourage, he gets off his horse, um, and this is, of course, the famous horse that he had since he was 13. There's a whole story um, that's brought down, and I bring it down in the book as well, as to the significance of this horse. Um, everything with Alexander had, had, had some kind of a, uh, an omen, a significance. So it, it's, he, he comes, jumps off his horse, and he bows down, and his entourage, his comrades, his colleagues look at him and, and wonder, well, how can you bow down to this Jewish priest. And, and yeah, I'm going to stop you for one second, is- um, Ari, um, I, to look at this story. So Alexander is bowing down to this Shimon Tzadik. Would somebody like Alexander bow down to anyone? Uh, you, you know,
know, it, 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 it's a good question. Um, Alexander was, with all his intellect and, and, and his, his, his studies with, with Aristotle, and he, he, he was a philosopher, he was an extremely superstitious person extremely superstitious. Uh, he would go into um, temples of other nations and bring sacrifices. He had no issue with that. Uh, he, he was very different from um, the Greeks that we encounter, especially coming off of Hanukkah now, that were forcing a, a, a philosophy and, and a paganism and you know, on, onto people they conquered. His, his goal wasn't to do that. His goal was to harmonize and unify the entire world. So if, if, if he felt that there was some kind of an, an omen of some sorts, um, it's, it's quite, quite plausible. It's quite plausible. It's actually interesting that the Macedonians had a tradition, um, contrary to the Persians, that one does not bow down to a king. So people never bow down to Alexander. He, he, he wasn't into that at all. And when he came to Persia, and people bowed down to him. He kind of like poo-pooed it. You know, you know, I don't need this. You know, we we don't do this. Interesting. Okay, you know, so I Greeks threw you off. Macedonians don't bow down to anybody, um, even to our own king. Here, here, it appears that this was, you know, an exception. He was superstitious. He felt that this was part of his dream. He saw Shimon and Sadik in his dream. Quite plausible for someone like Alexander. It was not was not beyond him to do that. He wasn't above that. So this really is going to be a change in history of somebody on his way to destroy the temple, and now he bows down to Shimonat Sadik, dream, omen, whatever, and now, and now instead of war, so now what happens? So, 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 so now what happens? Here, here there are conflicting, conflicting accounts. The Medrash, Josephus, uh, the Talmud doesn't um, account for this, whether or not. Alexander visited the temple, the, the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaMikdash, not clear. There's Midrashim that he was taken in uh, by Psisa ben Gavia, Gavia ben Psisa, um, but it's not clear. You know, what is clear from the Jewish tradition is um, at the time, uh, Shimon Tzadik uh, understood the significance of the event, uh, and, and there was a decision made that Alexander's name would be incorporated into the lexicon of Jewish names. And therefore, we have Alexanders and Senders and all those derivations from that one event. Uh, there's also uh, different accounts as to whether or not um, Alexander was shown Sefer Daniel, the book of Daniel, and was shown that uh, the prophecies in Sefer Daniel were about him. Uh, amazing. I know you love Alexander, so I let you go on. And I know no, the okay. book has four other um, emperors and Jews. So I think what we're going to try to do is give it, we're going to make it short and sweet, which I know for you is hard because you have so much information. But short and sweet, let's touch on each one just to give people a feeling that uh, when they're going through the history books and hearing about history, there's actually a whole nother side that they've never heard about. So let, let's start with Alexander survives his six years of conquering the world. Um, he dies, however he dies, and his, uh, his empire is broken up into three, four pieces, and 
the first one, which is really historical, it's coming up next week, is the Tomai dynasty, which really has uh, Egypt and Israel and, uh, and his interaction with rabbis. What, what was that? What's something you could tell us about that? Certainly. So, 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 so Ptolemy, uh, the, the first, the founder of the Ptolemy dynasty, was an older colleague of, of, of Alexander. He was with Alexander during the three years of study with Aristotle, and he decided wisely that uh, there, there was there, there was not the he, he realized that he was not the person to take over the entire empire. He focused on Egypt and successfully started a dynasty which lasted over three hundred fifty years and which ended with with the famous Cleopatras and the famous Cleopatra who was the only ruler of that dynasty um, who spoke the native Egyptian language. Everybody else only spoke uh, Greek. And uh, it was the original Ptolemy's son, who was Ptolemy Philadelphus, who, continuing in his father's footsteps, attempted to make Alexandria, which is where he made the capital. He had moved the capital from one other part of Egypt to Alexandria by this point, and was trying to make it the cultural and intellectual center of the world and brought in uh, lecturers and famous philosophers and mathematicians. There was a massive library, which was really a university, and uh, it was this Ptolemy, the second ruler of the dynasty, who was involved in wanting to translate the the Bible, the, the Torah. So he and, already had a relationship with different rabbis to set this up, or just because he was king, he brought them all in? Yeah, it, again, it, 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 it's not exactly clear how, how, this, how this played out. Uh, Josephus has one version. Um, there's the letter of Aristeus, which is unclear as to its, its authenticity or not in, in terms of the, the time of it. The, the, the Talmud records uh, two episodes, uh, one that was a successful translation, one that wasn't a successful translation. It's clear that that he brought uh, translators um, to Alexandria, put them into separate rooms where, miraculously, each one translated uh, the Torah, the Bible, um, exactly the same with 14 significant changes from the Hebrew to the Greek. Okay, as my time is even flying more, I'm going to skip around because we're not going to hit them all, which is why everybody has to go get your book by Ari uh, Lieberman, The Emperor and the Jews. But uh, let's take a minute and talk about one of the most interesting relationships, and that's Antoninus, whoever that is, and Rebbe, the, uh, the person who basically codified and put the Mishnah or the oral law together. What was their relationship, which is certainly different than any other relationship? Their relationship was the relationship of emperor to emperor. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi really had the status of, of he was the prince of Israel. He he had tremendous authority, tremendous power vis-a-vis the Jewish people. Uh, And so it was emperor to emperor, which morphed and turned into a, a... teacher-student relationship, which, which runs so counter to, to, to all the historical paradigms 
of Rome and Israel, Esau uh, and, and Yaakov and Jacob, that, that makes it so, such an incredible story in, in terms of, of how they interacted, uh, how Antoninus, who, who, who I believe was, was most likely Marcus Aurelius, uh, but you know, there, there's, there's room on that one. Marcus Aurelius was a, a philosopher king. He went to war, but but didn't want to. He wrote uh, his book Meditations, which which is continues to be a bestseller. It's it's kind of like a self help book with a little bit of philosophy, um, you know, a kind of a uh, Pirke Avos of sorts uh, for the for the secular world. And and they have this deep deep intimate relationship. Uh, Antoninus Marcus Aurelius confided. In Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, in Judah the Prince, uh, he told him his problems, his personal problems, his the problems that he was having with with ruling Rome. Uh, it's all shrouded in in mystery. There was a secret tunnel um, that they went through back and forth. So I get, I think it's the mystery of it all, the secrecy of it all that that kind of captures the imagination, um, so that you don't have. Um, secular sources for it. It, w- it was something that, according to our traditional sources, both parties wanted to keep very, very private and secret. And and that you know that is one of the 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 pathways of of the in in some of these encounters between great personalities of the secular world and Torah personalities. There was a a a, a privacy and modesty in many cases. Amazing. Ari, my time is flying, and I enjoy this so much. I enjoyed your book. Again, it's the it's Ari Lieberman. He wrote The Emperor and the Jews. I could give you about 45 seconds and uh, just leave us with a thought that you'd like to leave us with, and please tell us how we can get your book. Fine. I, 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 think, the, I think the thought is, is that, is that um, history is, is, is a way that we can learn about the hashkacha, the divine providence in the world. It's a way that we can strengthen our amuna. It's a way that we can see um, sometimes the good, sometimes the not so good, but we see the greatness of the Jewish people and of the Jewish personalities and leaders, and we see the importance that every Jew has in impacting in the world as every Jew, the simplest of Jews, relates to the greater world um, and, and, and mankind. Amazing. That is an amazing thought. And now tell me how we can get, again, it's Ari Lieberman. His book is The Emperor and the Jews. How can we get your book? Um, the, the book is found in, in, in most uh, Jewish bookstores across, um, across the United States. Uh, and beyond, uh, it is found on Amazon. One can buy it directly on Amazon. Uh, one can buy it uh, through Feldheim uh, distributors uh, as well. Great. Ari, have a great Chavez. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciated the book, and I appreciated the time you spent with us. Have a great Chavez. Thank you very much, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you very, very much. I okay. appreciate it very much. Beautiful. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so much information. We touched on only like four of my 17 questions that I had already written down to talk with Ari, but we did not make it to those questions, and we are now coming up to a break. So 
I have an amazing parable to tell you. We got to do our letter of the week. So hold through the break because I don't know where my music is, but we're going to be right back. Do you want to see things like this? Did you just say you died? <laughs> well, I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. Your dogs are gone. And sometimes, a little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous drakes. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. Welcome back to Who's Got Chutzpah. I'm your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. And are you ready? Oh. Andy, what holiday is this associated with? Oh, boy. Uh, uh. Sukkot? I'm sorry, that's not the answer we were looking for. Whitney, for the win, can you tell us which holiday is this? I'm I know. Shavuot. No, I'm sorry. I've got the answer. Ta-da! What? My show, Let's Talk Torah, where we talk Torah, holidays, faith, and all the things that help us live our life. That's Let's Talk Torah, Thursdays at 3 p.m. That's pretty good. Times we see a guy running down to first base and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. Umped. I mean, that's the, get umped. <laughs> that, that can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're going to have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. And we're back. I hope you learned a lot of stuff from my friend Ari. Pick up his book, The Emperor and the Jews. It's just an interesting read of uh, of this play between these rabbis and these emperors, something that is really not part of your regular reading of history, and, and it, it affects so much of, of our day-to-day life, even today. We certainly don't have time to get through all of them. We touched on one, which is really next week's fast day. There's a fast day next week. Um, it's called the Fast of the 10th of Teves or Tevet. And it, 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 one of the focuses, again, one is the temple walls were surrounded, but one of the things we talk about is how the Torah was translated into Greek. That's the famous Septuagint, if I'm pronouncing it right, which really means translation of 70. There were 72. And there were numerous issues that Ari touched on where they couldn't literally translate. Some are actually comical. Um, one of the non-kosher animals is a hare. In Hebrew, it's an arneves. Uh, but that was the name of Talmai's wife. So it ain't going to look too good if the Torah says that the, the, the emperor's wife is not kosher. It just doesn't read well. So they actually, miraculously, all 72 changed the translation. It, it's still referred to the animal just without giving it a name. It was more of a description. So the question always is, if there are so many miracles going on, so then, like, what's the big deal? Miracles, translated miraculously, isn't that a good thing? 
So the answer is it's not a good thing because until that time, if if the world wanted to know what the Torah had to say, they would go find a rabbi, go find a teacher, they would study, they would get the full-fledged explanation. They would they would see the beauty of how the Hebrew language, um, with its nuances, has so many different uh, meanings and and prisms. While once it's translated, so now what do I need the rabbi for? I got the translation. I got the Torah. And they don't realize all the things they're missing in it, um, which is why the oral Torah uh, originally was not written down at all. But even when it's written, it's written in such a way that you must have a teacher. It's just too big to be written down where somebody could say, oh, I got all that already, so I don't need it. I don't need that rabbi. I don't need that teacher. So that's one of the reasons why it's a fast day. And the last reason that we again touched on is that Ezra um, passed away. And uh, what great Torah leaders, great leaders in the Jewish nation, when they pass away, that's, uh, that's cause for, for concern and for sadness. And fasting always leads to repentance. That's its purpose. Okay. So we got a few things left to get into. We got to do our letter of the week. So hopefully my letter of the week is right behind me. And I, there's my thumb. So we are good. That is the letter Zion. It is the seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Hence, its numerical value is seven. It makes a Z sound, which is interesting because in English, the Z sound is the end of the alphabet. But for us, it's way at the beginning. Um, it is not a common letter, interesting enough. Um, another interesting fact is there are, once um, I have to count, shot, nays, gates. I think there's six or seven letters. In, the, in a Torah scroll that actually have little Zions sticking up like a crown on top of them. So that's something I talked about in class this week. But the word of the week is actually the letter. The letter is Zion, but Zion in Hebrew actually means weapons. And I thought it's interesting that when we think of weapons, what do we think of? Obviously, most people think of weapons or guns and swords and knives and, and it's about all these emperors and wars. But... But for the Jewish people, that's not our weapons. All the, the great rabbis and Talmudists that dealt with these emperors did not deal with physical you know, weapons, with swords, with guns, with tanks. That's not how we were going to be able to win. That would just be a war we'd lose. Our weapons are how we deal with them, how we talk to them, how we interact with them, how we show them what we believe and what we need to accomplish and that we don't need to fight. So as a Zion, which means weapons, is an interesting word to think about with all the emperors I discussed with Ari Lieberman and, uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, even these fast days surrounding the walls of the temple and all that stuff. So, and again, uh, current history, unfortunately, um, current events with all the things happening with the weapons and people out there uh, murdering people is just a terrible thing. But it's a good word. So with my little bit of time left, I must tell you an amazing parable. Um, you'll hear in the story, it's not a true story, but the lesson is fantastic. So there was a man, we'll call him Isaac. So Isaac was down on his luck. Nothing he tried worked. He was not successful. So he wanted to go find the angel of luck. In Hebrew, mazel, like mazel tov, mazel means luck. So he was going to go search for the angel of luck. So on his way, on his travels, he runs into a tree. And the tree says, oh, you're going to the angel of mazel. If you could help me out, uh, my tree doesn't bear fruit. Something's wrong. Okay? Isaac says, no problem. Isaac continues, and he meets a beautiful princess, and she says, I can't go home. Can you please ask the angel of Mazel if he can help me also? 
okay, no problem. I'll help you out, no problem. And he continues on his way, and he runs into a lion, and the lion is very ill. And the lion says, oh, if you're going to find the angel of, of luck, maybe you can help me out. So he goes, he finds the angel of Mazel, and the angel of Mazel says, you keep searching, and this is how you help those three people you ran into, or stuff. So he goes back to the tree, and the tree says, oh, you found a way to help me out? He says, yeah. Um, the reason why you can't have beautiful fruit is because there's, um, there's a treasure chest filled with gold and diamonds and rubies and jewelry that your roots are all around. If somebody will dig out that treasure chest, um, you'll have fruit. So the tree says, great, you dig out the treasure chest, I'll have fruit, you'll have money. And Isaac says, sorry, I am very busy, I am on a quest, I am searching for my, for my, uh, for my good luck, I don't have time to dig out your treasure chest. And he moves along, and he goes to the princess, and he tells the princess, I ran at the angel of luck, he said, you need to marry somebody, whoever you marry will be king, and once you're married, your father will take you back home, life will be fantastic. So the prince again says, great, Isaac, if you marry me, You'll be king, I'll be free, we'll all be happy. And again, the foolish Isaac says, oh, I'm sorry, princess, but I am on a quest. I am busy. I I just don't have time to help you out. And he gets to the lion, and he says to the lion, he says, I spoke to the angel of luck, and he says that that you need to eat the brains of a fool who keeps, uh, every time opportunity comes his way, he ignores it. And the lion, of course, eats. Isaac. And the lesson is quite simple. There's so many opportunities, so many things that are happening out there for everybody and everyone. Don't miss those opportunities that are staring you in the face. So, we got to wrap it up. Time is up. So, I thank you to all my wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team today. We have Kelsey, Angel, Stephen, and Cole. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.